Welcome to episode 62 of Breakout Culture. I'm Ed Vasey, none other than the culture editor of Country and Townhouse magazine. And I'm Charlotte Metcalf. I'm the associate editor at the magazine. And first of all, Ed and I would like to say a big thank you to Coots for having sponsored the last 10 episodes. Anyone can visit coots.com to find out more about how they could help high net worth clients with their bespoke borrowing solutions. Depending on your stage in life, you might be parents with very young children assessing where you're currently living or looking to upsize. Often you can spend months looking for a dream that simply doesn't exist. So some people end up buying and developing from scratch or renovating what they have. I've had so many friends who've given up the search because that four bedroom farmhouse with a lovely garden in a nice village can be very elusive. I know exactly what you mean. And certainly since lockdown and COVID, people are more and more desperate to find a home they really feel they can settle for good in, raise a family and work from. The good news is that whether you find a tumble down place with potential to develop, or if you decide to revamp your existing house to make it work for you, Coots could be your supportive partner. Coots will look at your total assets and look beyond the obvious when assessing affordability. Visit coots.com to find out more. It's Valentine's Day very soon, and how better to celebrate it than by watching the greatest love story of all time? No, not Charlotte Metcalf and Ed Vasey. <laughs> it's the Royal Ballet's production of Kenneth McMillan's Romeo and Juliet, and it's going to be broadcast over 900 cinemas across the world on Valentine's Day which for your information is a Monday. I don't know whose idea that was. It's set to Prokopiev's score. The ballet was first performed in 1965 by Rudolf Nureyev and Margot Fontaine. It remains a firm favourite with ballet lovers all over the world. It's being performed and filmed at the Royal Opera House on February 3rd with Anna Rose O'Sullivan as Juliet and principal Marcellino Sambe as Romeo. And we're absolutely delighted to have you, Marcellino, with us today. Good morning. What a phenomenal introduction. Wow. Isn't that good? I am <laughs> on fire. Are you, even, <laughs> you even gave me an Italian twist to my name. I love it. Marcellino. Yes. You know what I'm like. How do you, out how, of control. How do you say your name? I know. My name is a bit more, it sounds a bit more boring. Marcellino. Marcellino. Well, Marcellino, it's a delight to have you on. And I thank you particularly, as I know you've had to tear yourself out of class, rehearsals, other interviews and so on to be with us. So many, many, many thanks for making the time. Now, you've had a stellar rise to ballet stardom. You were born in Lisbon, Lisbon, studied at the National Conservatory there before joining the Royal Ballet Upper School. You graduated into the company for the 2012 to 2013 season and were promoted to first artist in 2014, soloist in 2015, first soloist in 2017 and principal in 2019. You're also a keen choreographer and have won numerous awards, both here and internationally. Your list of roles with the Royal Ballet is literally too long to read out on this podcast. Now, this production opened in October with um, Cesar Corrales as Romeo and Francesca Howard as Julia, and you were dancing the role of Mercutio. So is this, in fact, the first time you're playing Romeo? No, I was so fortunate to be able to perform Romeo back in 2019, the season where I got promoted to principal. And I feel like it was one of those roles that really like um, showcased my versatility, which is everything that I always wanted to do. I always wanted to be able to, you know, switch from the cheeky, um, mischievous Mercutio to the dreamy Romeo. And I think that that's such, that's, 
there's such beauty in having having a company that believes in your range, and that's the Royal Ballet for me. Anyway, I love ballet. I think it's such a good idea to be screening this on Valentine's Day. Tell us a bit about the fantastic reviews you've had since it opened in October. Yeah, so it quite, it's quite interesting because in October I was performing the role of Mercutio, which is obviously, um, it's more of a soloist position in the ballet, obviously not Romeo and Juliet, but I enjoy it as much as I do Romeo in a way because it's such a such a different character with such a different perspective into the story. Of course, he knows that everything is going on, but um, he is much more detaching when it comes to the love, the, the poignant love story. Uh, but the reviews were, were raving. They, they really enjoyed. I mean, it's a production that keeps on giving because each generation has brought something so fresh and new to it. And, you know, it's something that we can all re relate to. We sometimes lose our heads and lose control of what we really like, you know, uh, um, of, 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 our, of our senses. And I feel like this story, it's so, it's so that. It's so that, that connection with the unknown and with uh, these visceral feelings. And I think that's the great beauty of, of, of this production. I mean, I think it must be, you know, pretty challenging to take on the role of Romeo that's been performed by some of the greatest ballet dancers in history. What have you brought to the role, do you think, that's really made it your own? Yeah, I've, I've, I've thought a lot about this because obviously getting the opportunity to play Romeo is probably one of the best roles I think a male dancer can expect because obviously technically it's super challenging. The duets, the paradas that you do with a girl are incredible. They're so unique. The choreography is just so, so, so complex. I mean... It, I feel like what I bring to this role is a level of honesty and, you know, my acting in ballet is very inspired by what I see in the National Theatre or my favourite actors and kind of, um, you know, uh, change a bit conceptions of what, like, for example, the, the great director Zifarelli did to make us believe what Romeo looks like. And I feel like for so many years there was such an idea of what Romeo and Juliet would look like and then... Um, for me to be able to look so different from the past Romeos that have been in the company here uh, is something that really makes me happy as well. So uh, if I'm sort of, uh, if people are busy sort of kissing each other on Valentine's Day and don't have time to watch uh, the screening in the cinema, will there be a chance to catch up? Do you think it'll go online? Yeah, there's always like uh, reprises of the of the of the live streams, which is always a great way because you know my mother loves taking like five million friends in different occasions, <laughs> so that's always <laughs> a good thing. Uh, but yeah, I think that there'll be an online option for sure. And you know, if we are lucky, they might do a DVD. I didn't think DVD still existed. Oh yeah, it's it's still it's still a thing that ballet lovers love to have. I think, and they make a sign oh. uh, sign them on, on stage door and stuff. So yeah. We have to play for your audiences, yeah. <laughs> so I'm, I'm wondering as well when, when you um, film this, because uh, you do it straight through, don't you? It's just film performance. Does the camera make any difference? Do you think to how you perform? See, I would like to think it doesn't, but it does in a way. Like I'm suddenly much more aware of the, the little stupid details that uh, I, I, I usually wouldn't even think about. But like you start thinking, oh my God, am I, is my line here right? Or am I facing the right angle for the kiss? Or, you know, and it just becomes a bit more like uh, a bit more um, thought out, which I, I think with experience, you probably would just be, you know, like having another day, another show, another exciting moment because it's all about being present isn't it but i think the camera always has that element of like this is forever now tell us let's have a bit of ballet gossip while we've got you on tell us Ooh. how the departure <laughs> of how's the departure of tomorrow rojo gone down in the world of ballet uh i mean tomorrow rojo has done like in my personal opinion i think she has done such amazing things here in england and uh she has such an inter interesting vision 
And as a colleague, she was a fierce colleague and now she's a fierce director and I really appreciate her power. And I feel like it would be so great for uh, San Francisco to to experience this, to have like an... Uh, she's really an uh, uh, European uh, director. She has this very sense of like, you know, unity. And I think it would be so interesting to see what she does in America and the repertoire that she'll bring over there. And, and I'm sure, and then we'll give as well space for a new director to the, here, here in London, bring, bring a new vision to English National. I think that's always exciting. Tell me about your journey to ballet. How did you decide that ballet was good? Because it is an incredible commitment from about the age of six. Mm. Well, my, my path in ballet has been quite unusual. I started with African dance, uh, which was uh, obviously I was brought, brought up in this neighborhood that was mostly African immigrants and my parents, my, my dad was from, from Guinea. And so I've always, I've always been really connected with these African rhythms and these, um, these kind of like events where everybody would just dance in a circle and show off their best moves. So I've always had this natural, natural way of wanting to perform and be the center of attention. And uh, when I discovered that I could do this as a career, you know, like perform for people and, and no one would make fun of me for wanting to do, to dance everybody, you know, I just, I just thought like, wow, this is great. So I went to do the audition to the conservatoire in Lisbon and somehow I got in with no experiences, ballet experience at all. Uh, I feel like someone in that panel must have thought that I had some some potential. What sort of age were you then, Marcelino? And when I auditioned, I was uh, eight years old. Gosh, really young. Yeah. Have you seen the film West Side Story, the new one? I haven't seen the new one because I'm so reluctant. I, I'm I'm I, I'm so <laughs> sorry to say that, but like I loved the original so much, and I I, I you know I'm, I always see the very choreographic side of things, and of course Justin Peck is an amazing choreographer and. I feel like he's probably the Jerome Robbins of our uh, of our generation, but that original, that original choreography, actors, the coloring of the movie, everything is just so dear to me that I'm really reluctant to see the new one. But I'm I hear great great things. Yeah, there's the scene where they do America, which I've I think the dancing is absolutely off the scale. I mean, I just wondered if kind of films like West Side Story are kind of gateway drugs to it for a younger demographic to come and see the ballet. Oh, I, I, I definitely think so, because uh, this West, West Side Story is deeply rooted in ballet in a way that originally was created by Jerome Robbins, which is, is like the one of the best ballet choreographers. And then, of course, he branched it out to the West End and to, the, to Broadway. So he's a very like wide scoped choreographer, but it's so deeply rooted in ballet and technique. And when you see these dances in the movies or in the musicals, the, the West Side Story, you really understand that it's technical. It's not something that anyone can do. You really have to train. You really have to know, you know, technique. And I feel like that then as well is a gateway to people to be like, oh my God, like, Ballet is a bit different, but still has that r regiment and that technique, that pattern, that structure. And I feel like that's what is very interesting about movies like this. I'm always so happy to, to, to be able to, to see that dance movies are coming up again. So I read somewhere that ballerinas are going to cast off their tutus. Do you <laughs> think that, do you think sort of classical ballet is still too conservative i thought about that i thought i thought that ballet was conservative for the longest time when i was studying in portugal and my my vision of ballet was russian ballet my vision of uh, what dance ballet, ballet was was the marinsky the kiro of the bolshoi and um so my uh, so i my vision was quite conservative when it came to i thought what ballet purity was and the classic tutus i just thought that that was and then i started seeing different productions for example i started looking at anthony dowell's swan lake which was made in the uh, early 80s and the production was groundbreaking the costumes were incredible and then his of sleeping beauty as well was so 
so different, so exciting. And I just thought like, wow, ballet is such a foundation to be stretched in all directions. And because it's still a very like young art form comparing to other art forms like music or theater and th uh, drama, like um, there's still so much to be developed too. And I think, I think uh, ballet is not conservative at all. And I feel like it's in our job of our generation now to be able to like change that perspective. I mean, we have Wayne McGregor as well doing amazing things with ballet dancers. I mean, the ballet dancers look sometimes, you can make girls on point shoes look like animals and you don't miss the tutus because um, it, makes, it makes it in such a, such a cool way that you think that it's so current. But then as well, sorry, I'm, I'm going to go on about this. I'm very passionate about <laughs> No, this is good. We've opened you up. <laughs> yes, yes. I started, I started tough and now I'm losing. <laughs> uh, then, but then there's such magic on a curtain rising up and you're seeing like 24 swan, swans, women dressed in tutus, pretending to be swans. Um, and you just suddenly go, just connect to the 18th century. But you can do that in a very cool way with new designs, with uh, push, uh, pushing forward the stereotypes of what a, a man and a woman can do in ballet, you know, tell different stories. Maybe like it's time to tell, tell a bit more LGBT stories in ballet. So then like you can still have that classical shape, but why not two, two queens and two princes falling in love, you know? So uh, there's a, lot, a, lot, uh, a long way to go, but it's an exciting way because I want to be, for example, part of that change. On the one hand, it's very, very international ballet. We have dancers from all over the world coming to London, for example. But do you think there's a sort of English ballet culture, a French ballet culture, a Russian ballet culture that sort of almost sort of compete with each other? Or uh, it's it's it's. I feel like I always say that we are all different uh, gems. So like uh, uh, here, I think we are diamonds in 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 Paris emeralds and Russia uh, rubies. Everybody, uh, we're all somehow special in their own way. I was very attracted to the English ballet because the English style of ballet, because of choreographers like Frederick Ashton, Kenneth Macmillan, people that really, they were the mavericks of ballet. They really pushed what ballet could be. Like this Romeo and Juliet is, it's unbelievable. Comparing to the original versions that were made in Russia, it's it's so visceral, it's so human. Uh, we stand parallel. I, I could, the way that I act on stage is the way that I would act if I was falling in love with someone across the room in a club, you know, it's like super, super real. But then on the other side, you go to Russia and you see a physicality, a technique that is just so pure. The bodies are so long. I mean, the dancers look like three meters tall and, you know, they, they jump they, and they float in the air. They're so light. There is this amazing... Um, style rooted on character dancing, on character folk. There's a folk element to their dancing. And then if you go across to Paris, then you see this, this exact, exactement, this, this very like clean, um, there's a, a slight air of arrogance that is very alluring. There's an allure to it in a way, like the dancers never give you everything. There's like a barrier that is like very appealing. So it's, it's yeah, I feel like, there's always something positive in every element and there's no better or worse. I hate comparing arts. It's like, how can you quantify if someone is better than the other? I feel like as a, in the future, hopefully if I can lead a company or be part of a, a, a team that leads a company, I really want to, to make sure that people really truly understand that you cannot compare uh, Picasso to Degas. It's complete different worlds and uh, brains and 
they brought bring something so special to 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 the world, but in their own voices. And I think ballet dancers and ballet styles and ballet companies and choreographers all should have their space to shine in their own way. So that your long term goal then is, is to lead a company, but but what what about the immediate future? You can be doing more choreography or more solo roles. What's next for you immediately? So immediately, uh, there's uh, obviously this Romeo and Juliet is like some my focus at the moment. But then there's a very exciting stuff coming up as well. I'm uh, Christopher Wilden, which is one of my favorite choreographers, personally. He's uh, creating Like Water for Chocolate, which is an amazing uh, Lara Esquivel novel. Uh, from And it's such a magical novel that mixes food culture with this Mexican flavor, this magical story and this at the center, this love story that it's so so painful in a way as well. Uh, I'm playing a lot of doomed love, love, love couples this, <laughs> this season. <laughs> but this production is going to be premiering in June and is, the, is like the new full-length ballet for the company that is going to be created on me and Francesca Hayward, which is like a dream come true. That's, that's, that's basically in my immediate vision for what I want to do is be involved in creation, create myself. I'm I'm really hoping in the future I can be part of like creating the new classics. There's a lot of stories from the past, like Othello, that haven't been really translated to ballet. In a, I mean, there's, there there are some successful versions, but I still feel like there's so much more you can do with such um, a tale. And you know, source dancers that can really look like Othello. In my vision of what Othello looks like, to then bring that vision up, I think that'll be really exciting in the future as well. What do you think he really looks like? I feel like I kind of don't don't want to say that I would like to create a role that is like specifically made for someone that looks like me with the same mm-hmm. uh, et- ethnicity and stuff. But I feel like that needs to be a, that needs to be a, a sort of dancer that is strong, muscly, power. I see, I see, I see. The, I don't want you should never typecast uh, a role or whatever. Mm, I think that's really exciting. I'd love to see a new version of Othello because it's you know that that jealousy. I mean, it's still. Live and well everywhere, isn't it? <laughs> to be able to to know physicalize how that 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 jealousy ripples through your body and how then makes you do things that are just so like despicable. And then as well, you have Iago, this which is basically like mm. that voice in your ear. I think I, I would be an amazing ballet. I really, really, I can't stress enough. Hopefully, as well, if I'm I'm Othello, that would be great. Marcellino, <laughs> we're recording this on uh, we're recording this on Blue Monday, but you've cheered us both up. Yeah, you oh, really no, have. Uh, is it blue? You. I mean, look at the sunshine. It's shining and it's gorgeous today. Oh, yeah, exactly. Well, You're like so your positive. interview. Yeah, exactly. Well, can, please stay in touch with us because we'd love to hear what's next for you. You know, obviously, listeners, follow Marcelino's career carefully because he's going even further. Thank you so much. Thank you. Osman Yusufada is one of Britain's leading award-winning fashion designers. In fact, I first met him 10 years ago when, believe it or not, I was the Minister of Fashion. Anyway, Osmond's clothes adorn Beyonce, Emma Watson, Gwyneth Paltrow, I could go on, Taylor Swift, Kerry Mulligan, many more. He founded his fashion label in 2008 and it won the British Fashion Council New Generation Award for three years running. He's always thought that fashion mustn't be at the cost of others to the planet, so he's ahead of his time. His work is a, takes a sort of multidisciplinary approach, if you like, merging art, fashion and social commentary, as well as being a fashionista. He's studied at SOAS, and at Cambridge, as well as Central St. Martins. And his work has been displayed at the Icon Gallery in Birmingham, the Whitechapel, the Design Museum, and the V&A. If this wasn't enough, he's now a published author with an absolutely wonderful book called The Go-Between. It's already winning huge acclaim and rave reviews. It's basically about his childhood and adolescence in a closed, largely hidden community in Birmingham 
as the son of an illiterate Pathan immigrants from the Afghan-Pakistan border. We have got lots we are keen to talk to Osman about, and we're delighted that he's with us here this morning. Good morning. Good morning, Ed. Good morning, Charlotte. Good morning, Osman. I'm liking uh, the moustache. <laughs> now, now, Osman, as you know, I finished your book yesterday and was compelled to email you immediately as it's just so beautifully written and throws so much light on the immigrant experience. So huge congratulations. Now, we're going to get on to your clothes and your art later. But first, can you explain to our listeners how you're a go-between? For me, the go-between is really kind of like, the book is really up from the eyes of a child, from an 11-year-old, predominantly. And it's this idea that up to this point, you can actually cross many worlds until you have to actually come of age and you find your space in the world of men. And in some respects, it's a cross... It's a go-between between the world of the outside world, the inside world, the world of genders. And they're kind of spaces that people feel sort of like able to feel happy or control or kind of impose control in as well. So I think it's really, I mean, I think it's a multi-layered kind of book for me in many ways. Satnam Sangera, who I've got to know quite well, he was a guest on this podcast last year with his book Empire Land, is one of the book's fans. And he has described it as essential to understanding the complexities of multiculturalism. And having read it, I totally get what he says. Because uh, the thing that obviously really resonated with me as a Tory politician is the impact of uh, Margaret Thatcher's policies on Birmingham's working class. You've got a chapter entitled Mrs Thatcher's Hair and the Arrival of the Bushman. I think, um, I mean, Thatcher caused a lot of pain, especially when the deindustrialization of the North happened, when all the factories were closed down. And a lot of these men who came were actually, they came to do the jobs that no one really wanted to kind of do. They weren't necessarily literate from this area and other areas of Pakistan. And what they did was they ended up working in the foundries, in the factories. And when we stopped becoming a manufacturing, I mean, which I think is a really shame. I mean, my experience is from the fashion industry. We don't really have a, a really good solid manufacturing base anymore. And, and that's that's actually looking at it from a semi-elite kind of point of view. But I think once you're... Once you're in it, from someone as a as a migrant who's come to this country and has actually settled and you're used as some extent, I don't really like the words racialized labor, but I think I'd, I'll use it in this context. And then you're kind of, then your livelihood is kind of taken away from you and you don't necessarily have any way of upskilling yourself. And you're kind of like these, you're kind of cast aside to some extent and sort of rather useless and I think there at that point these very dapper men who came for a new life looking like Cary Grant and were extremely dapper looked for other places to actually define their identity and I think that's where the story of the Bushmen come from. Describe what a bush Bushman is then just quickly. I mean it's just a term on the street that the older kids use that when they started um, seeing these dapper gentlemen suited and tied and they started wearing growing their beards and actually absorbing themselves in their religion much more and you know changing their dress sense and I think you know the the whole when the when the mullahs started actually somehow kind of saving their souls. But but one of my favourite chapters which actually made me cry was when you describe your sisters as 10 year old children 
being taken out of school, going into Perda and effectively being locked up both inside and outside the house, outside imprisoned in their little mini black burkas. And for your sister, Ruxa, this was particularly cruel as she'd been really adventurous and outgoing. Tell our listeners what happened there. I mean, my parents are illiterate. They're both, they can't read or write in any language, not even in their mother tongue. They can't read or write in their, I mean, yet alone in English or the words of conversation that you can have. It's probably my mum has about four four or five, sort of, um, but she understands quite a lot. And my dad probably can have a, a very a minimal kind of conversation about how are you and a cup of tea. So so we lived in a red light district area as well. You know, I mean, it's this layer or layer of illiteracy, an underclass living in a an, an ultra-conservative underclass who is quite ultra-orthodox as well. And then you have this area which is full of pimps and prostitutes. And um, there were about 450 women working on those streets. You know, the idea of actually keeping something pure and passing it on to someone else, as you would with your daughter, becomes so much more amplified. My cousins back in Pakistan didn't really go to they did a couple of grades basically um up to sort of um high just before high school and then they all kind of sat and sat at home in paradise there's a really moving bit about one of your sisters who one minute she was playing hopscotch on the street with her little pigtails flying and rushing around and the next minute she's literally imprisoned in this mini black burqa that's specially made for it so it's just so sort of you you just write about it so well well my younger sister actually said um she um <laughs> she said it was great she didn't have to go to school she could like kind of <laughs> <laughs> initially and then it kind of then the constriction became obvious as mm. the, the months and the years actually kind of went by and what they could do and how they couldn't actually open the door. And they didn't know, my parents didn't know what the outside world could offer in themselves. They'd created a community themselves and they had no way. I mean, the outside world didn't really want to embrace them either. So they didn't really know what necessarily was an offer. You know, I mean, they came from somewhere where they had very few skills or very codes to actually integrate either. Tell us what happened to your sisters because you lost one sister who uh, fled, as it were, and their stories have extraordinary endings. Yeah, they've done phenomenally well. Um, one of them was working for the Labour Party. Another one is, a, she's doing a PhD, but she's also a university lecturer. I mean, they're really phenomenal, strong women with a lot of determination and have really made their own paths. I, I think what's, what's remarkable about the way you write about your father, moving on to him now, is the balance you achieve between love and rage. I mean, I know I'm simplifying this enormously, but he beat your beloved mother, he spoilt your older brother, Rotten, and when you suggested he reconcile with your sister, Ruxar, um, who's the one who rebelled, and when you admitted to him that you'd found her and asked him to reconcile, he told you that you should have killed her. I think for me, I mean, I, I loved my dad. My dad was actually... Um, a protector, kind of pioneer. He provided for us. We we would probably have the best food on the street because of my dad. And we had like the fullest of larder. So I think on the, he's a very complex man. I mean, he, he lost his own father at the age of 10. There were eight of them. And in this dirt poor area where my his own... So he had to fight for everything. I mean, it's not really his father vanished in the second world war as a as a 
as a ship hand on the on the Royal British on the Merchant Navy. And also, you know, as the older you get, you you have to also realize that you know, parents are they're also people themselves. He was a person of his time and of his generation, and he yeah he was violent and but then also he was very principled and he was also a provider as well. So you've got um. Something coming up at the V&A. You're doing a talk there, which you'll have done by the time this podcast goes out. Tell us about that. Um, it's for the 75 years of the independence of Pakistan. And it's part oh, of the... yes. Brilliant. Yeah. Because this... you've, you've designed a, um, a building. Building's too strong a word. An installation. <laughs> an installation. <laughs> I did an installation over Selfridges, Birmingham, which was really on the conversation on migration and occupying non-peripheral spaces. I mean, am I really, I mean, a lot of my work is very autho-ethnographic and that's where I, I kind of try and bring the conversations that don't really have space in this very kind of, I don't know, I mean, I, kind of elitist world. I think the fast, the art world is still kind of quite elitist in itself, but at least you can have peripheral conversations and the borders are much more porous. That installation for me was really about bringing this conversation of migration right into the heart of the city. You know, we're always seen as the migrants. We want my migrants to live in close proximity like they do in shanty towns or they live in sort of like inner city areas or overcrowded areas or all kind of which become ghettos, but they're never kind of embraced. So that, that building was really about the celebration of sort of migrant and different conversations, basically. And is that what you've got at the V&A, Osman? The V&A is, is more um, installations across three spaces. It'll be, it'll be new um, commissions and it'll be really be about sort of diasporic as well as kind of a con- new kind of contemporary art conversations. Um, and when's that starting? That's when- on the 15th of July. The book is fantastic. It's out now. It's called The Go-Between. And thank you so much for coming on and telling us all about it. No, thank you so much for having me, guys. Thanks, Osman. That's all we've got time for this week, but do please keep listening. Don't forget that the new edition of Country and Townhouse is out now at selected newsstands and at Waitrose, as well as online, of course, along with the 2022 edition of Great British Brands. Thank you very much again to Coots for your continued support. Do visit the website coots.com and discover if its bespoke borrowing solutions could help you achieve that balanced life we're all in search of. Though we do have to remind you that your home may be repossessed if you do not keep up repayments on your mortgage. Credit is subject to status and fees may apply. Now, as regular listeners will know, we can be found at countryandtownhouse.co.uk, where you'll also find our sister podcast, House Guest, all the latest news on interiors from Carol Annette. And just add forward slash newsletter to subscribe both to the weekly magazine newsletter from Country and Townhouse and to the Great British Brands monthly one. When we started this podcast, we wanted to select one or two cultural events or books or new openings a week. We thought you would be really interested in. But that was back in April 2020, almost two years ago. Can you believe it? So just to shake things up a bit, we're going to be making some changes to the podcast over the next few weeks. So do please keep listening and tell us if you like what we're doing. We'd love to hear from you, of course, with all your feedback. So get in touch with us at charlotte at countryandtownhouse.co.uk. See you next week. Bye.